0: Welcome
1: to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul.
2: welcome to the Upwards podcast. I'm Dan Hummel. You're listening to the third episode. We've been delighted to hear from some of you about the first few episodes. We're already in December of 2020 and just want to remind you to rate the podcast if you like it and to leave any comments for us or any suggestions at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. I'm here today with the executive director of Upper House, John Terrell, who was the host for the interview that we're going to have for our episode today. John, welcome. Great to be with you, Dan. So, today we're talking about the Faith and Company documentary film series from Seattle Pacific University. John, tell us a bit about the series.
1: Well, I'm so excited about this resource. I've been around the faith and work movement for quite some time, and I'm not sure I found a better resource. Uh, the faith and company films are amazing uh, short documentary films that highlight the struggles and triumphs of people living out their leadership in business. a sacred calling. The companies are varied and are real diverse from all over the world. Uh, the leaders are diverse, the kinds of issues they're wrestling with are um, diverse. So it's just a fascinating set of films that um, I have found to be a powerful tool um, in working with business leaders and organizational
2: leaders more broadly. Great. And, and they're, the companies are from all over the world, but they even have ones from Wisconsin.
1: It, exactly. Yes, I was able to be a part of the filming of uh, a company called Edgerton Gear, which is located in Edgerton, Wisconsin. And we probably filmed that two years ago now, roughly. Maybe it wasn't quite that long ago. So I saw it from the the film production side and they'll go on site for maybe two days, two or three days and and do all this, you know, capture all this film. And then it's amazing to see the finished product, which is, you know, maybe six to 10 minutes long. So it's quite a process, but the stories are very, very moving and um, it's powerful to to see the final film.
2: Yeah. And these are really high production value uh, documentaries. There is a great trailer for the series that we have linked in the show notes. So make sure to check that out, maybe even before listening to the conversation. Now here at Upper House, John Yu and Gene Collins, our director of administration, just finished leading a cohort through uh, some of the Faith and Company videos and the curriculum. So can you say a little about that experience now that it's over?
1: Yeah, the the uh, Seattle Pacific University um, has created this film series, and they actually um, now have uh, four seasons of the films. I think when it's all said and done, there'll be I think 33 films, 34 films, something like that. And so I led a group uh, through season one, which is eight sessions, and the the local cohort that we um, gathered here in Madison uh, met via Zoom. But it's coincided with the MOOC, uh, the massively open online course that Seattle Pacific University was running on C, uh, season one, which I led as an instructor. So it was really fun to be in, a, in, in kind of a global digital format, uh, leading this MOOC with literally people from all around the world and then being able to have conversations with business leaders, church leaders, organizational leaders here in Dane County and the Madison area.
2: Yeah, so it was, from all accounts, a great uh, cohort. Uh, The cohort model is something we're trying here at Upper House in this new season, Uh, sort of smaller groups gathering consistently around a shared uh, theme or curriculum. So the conversation we're about to jump into is between you and two of the Faith and Company series producers. They're Randy Franz and Kenman Wong. What do we need to know about Randy and Kenman?
1: They're... Academics, but they are, um, uh, and they're committed to scholarship, and they're 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 fine scholars in their own right. But they're very concerned about practical application and coming al- alongside business and organizational leaders to help them integrate their faith in their work. And so they they care deeply about that. They've been um, involved in this broader vocation formation or um, a theology of business movement or project for for many many years but let me just let me just mention a few things Kevin Wong um, is is a professor of business ethics Uh, he's been at Seattle Pacific University for um, I I think a a number of years I don't know exactly when he started but he is actually the lead uh, creator and producer of Faith and Company and he's transitioned out of that role uh, out of that role in seasons three and four and Randy Franz has stepped in to, to fill some of that um, vacancy, and um, Randy is um, uh, co-producing the Faith and Company films. He's a co-founder of the Center for Integrity and in Business uh, at Seattle Pacific University, which is the, the center which uh, produced or hosted the films. He's also a professor of management in the School of Business, Government, and Economics. So They've been around a long time. They've been in this movement a long time. And they're, um, they're faculty um, who care deeply about academic research, probing a Christian theology of business. But they also care deeply about the lives of practitioners who are trying to apply these principles uh, in, the, in the business world. So the, their bios
2: will also be in the show notes, also with links to, to their uh, faculty pages and more ways to learn about them. So thank you, John. Uh, here now is our Upwards Conversation with John Terrell, Randy Franz, and Kenman Wong.
1: Well, I'm really excited to be here today with Randy and Kenman, and um, I'm just personally really inv- really invested in this project. I've had a chance to teach a local cohort um, from the Faith and Company Films, and they have thoroughly enjoyed um, their time interacting with the films and in interaction with one another. There are 16 in our local cohort. I've also had a chance to um, teach the the MOOC that's running right now on Business on Purpose, year one or series one. And that's just been a delight to interact with about 70 students from around the world. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be here today with two of the co-creators and um just uh, long-term voices at Seattle Pacific University. And so I just re- welcome, and am delighted to have in conversation, Kenman Wong and Randall Franz. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you, good to be here. So we're gonna, have a, we're gonna have a three-way conversation today. Tell me about your background, where you grew up, uh, what you studied, and how you landed at Seattle Pacific University. Oh, we'll start with Randy.
0: Yeah, um, well, I was born in San Jose, California, and moved up and down the West Coast uh, with my family until I was 12. And then we moved over to Germany for four years. As when I was about really early, my, my folks joined Campus Crusade for Christ. And so uh, we're involved in full-time parachurch ministry for 37 years, I think it was. And uh, so went over there as a missionaries and lived there for four years. It was really a formative experience for me living in Germany from 12 to 16. Went to a little tiny missionary school over there, but did end up learning to speak some German. And, but it was just a very kind of formative shaping experience uh, to give me kind of a global perspective and uh, a real kind of mission understanding. Then I came back to, and we moved back to California um, at that point in time and lived in Sacramento until I got married and went off to, to school, and so. But I studied. Initially, I was thought I was going to go into full time ministry like my folks, follow that kind of footsteps, and uh, so I studied social sciences. I was working with Youth for Christ at a local um, high school for four years after I graduated from high school. Uh, my wife and I were working. And my future wife and I were working there together for a few years, and um, after graduation. we uh, I didn't know what else to do and so I was always good at school and I realized that uh, I wasn't going to go on into full-time Christian work at that point in time so I decided I'll just stay in school. Um, so I signed up for a master's degree in sociology and until I burnt out on school and uh, decided to uh, pursue other things and so I was always really good at helping um, people with their computers, and so I ended up becoming a computer software consultant on the Sacramento State University campus um, until I got really just disillusioned with that, except for when I got to go into professors' classes and help teach them. Hmm. So I decided I really wanted to do be in the classroom, so I was motivated to go back and get a PhD so I could uh, be a professor, and so I applied to a bunch of different places and Ended up going to Stanford for my PhD in sociology where I could focus on formal organizations because they had a really interesting collaboration with the business school. So I studied kind of the macro organizational and interpersonal dynamics in companies. And from there, when I graduated, I got hired at Seattle Pacific University and have been there for 30 years. So this is kind of the the
1: quick overview. Is that great? Just to get a, a bit of the background and what about you? Tell us a little bit about your growing up years um, and, and what eventually took you to Seattle Pacific University.
3: First, of all, I want to say thanks so much for having us jump on, on your program, John. This is wonderful to be, to be on this podcast with you. And I say that because you were a great colleague with us for many years, really kind of doing the background work for this series. I think the theological framing, a lot of the work that you helped us do really formed the background of this. So it's so much fun uh, to be back working with you in some capacity and collaborating and having you teach some of the classes and then having you uh, having you have us on here is, is wonderful. So uh, just a little bit about me. I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my parents were both uh, immigrants from China uh, who came in their late teens. Neither were able to finish college. So just uh, for the sake of survival, my dad was really involved in a number of small entrepreneurial ventures uh, his whole life. And so that pretty much exposed me to business Uh, pretty early in life. And then I came to faith in high school, applied to a number of colleges, and set my my sights on attending Biola in Southern California, a small Christian university. And my parents were gracious enough to allow me to attend there. And that's kind of a big deal for immigrant parents who did not complete college to let their son attend a school that they really had never heard of, and that was not uh, on any lists of rankings. Um, But that's really where my faith started to deepen. Uh, And then I attended business school at the University of Washington here in Seattle. I worked in consulting for a season and then really sensed a call to higher education and uh, earned my PhD at USC. And then I really kind of honed in on SPU. Um, I knew it to be a place really for having a great location, uh, faculty that was ecumenically Christian. So there were people from a wide range of denominations, and I knew that would allow for a lot of conversation. And there was a team of people there, a growing team, I should say, working on issues of faith, uh, business and ethics. And that was really attractive to me to come and be a part of a good team, uh, working collaboratively on on these kinds of themes.
1: Fantastic. Um, I wonder um, if both of you could tell me about a formative faith experience that really prompted you to begin to think about the implications of Christian faith on business leadership and practice. I know that's such a big part of the the film series. It's a big part of what SPU does. It's a big part of what you do in your teaching and your research. But I wonder if there was a moment or an experience that really did shape you and prompted you to think more carefully about this as not only a place of integration in your own life, but a place of schol- scholarly inquiry for you over over a lifetime. Kenman, let's start with you.
3: Oh, okay, okay. So um, really as an undergraduate, I think back to two kind of seminal moments for me. So one of them was um, I had a professor my freshman year who was the chair of the business program there at Biola, but he had a side gig. He worked as a consultant to the World Bank, um, so he was often flying off to Southeast Asia. In fact, I remember one semester, middle of the term, he was gone for two weeks and we had guest speakers uh, for every class session. Um, And to my knowledge, he was not involved with the kind of controversial structural adjustment work that the World Bank does, but he was a small business expert. So he was involved in helping people start enterprises. And uh, I don't really recall his words so much as his passion and his modeling of how business really wasn't only a tool to make ourselves wealthy, uh, but could be used to serve people who were living, who were vulnerable and living in conditions of poverty. I just remember his passion um, and his energy to do that. Um, And then another guest speaker we had as a freshman was an an alum, a successful one who, when he went to Biola, he was cleaning offices at night. And um, he grew that into a pretty large West Coast cleaning business. I believe it it wound up being a competitor to ServiceMaster. And I remember him saying, "You know, I try to do everything to the glory of God. Even if I'm mopping floors, I try to do that like Christ himself is gonna walk across that floor later in the evening. Um, and that sounds pretty intense, um, but I think both of those examples were formative and helping me see some of the broader implications, or at least planting those seeds, of how faith and business can connect in in meaningful ways. Yeah, good. Thanks, Randy. How about you?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question, Um, and as I reflect on my own faith journey, I think a real inflection point for me also happened during my undergraduate years when I was initially of heading towards a full-time kind of Christian vocation, and I encountered somebody that's really challenged my thinking, and his name was Tony Campolo. Um, I came across his books. I heard him speaking at some youth conferences, and you never heard of Tony Campolo. He was a spark plug of a speaker. He was a kind of an East Coast in-your-face. No, he was, and it was funny. He was engaging, and he was a sociologist, and he was just challenged my thinking in very practical ways about what does faith really look like? And he was involved in doing some orphan, orphanage work in, down in Haiti. And um, he started me, th- get you know, he burst my bubble, I guess, in many ways. And he kind of instilled, a, a even though I lived abroad, kind of more of a global kind of practical implications for the gospel and for our faith. And as an aspiring, budding sociologist, I could really connect. And I even sought him out. And I remember one I drove like four hours one day to go have breakfast with him because he was in town and he agreed. He was on the West Coast. And really, he made time for me. And it really kind of challenged me in many ways. And it started more of a journey than anything else. And, and ultimately, long story short, I thought, well, how can I have the most impact? I so as I looking around, I realized that the institution that was probably having more impact in the world than anything else was business. And so that really kind of put me on the path of saying, I want to figure out some how to make, how to shape business, the leaders in business, the institution of business, um, so that it has a more of a positive influence and impact on the world. And so that was, that was really kind of the formative experience. And so I went to study graduate school, but that was always kind of at the back of my mind to saying, I want to, f- business is really what I want to focus in on. Well, let's turn a, a bit and
1: start to talk about the Faith and Company series. I'd love for you, uh, one of the two of you, to just position it. I know this, this whole space of kind of faith and work or ministry and daily life or whole life discipleship, whatever we call it, is, is kind of a big space. And there are lots of sub-dimensions within the space. We could talk about business's mission. We could talk about conscious capitalism, which isn't necessarily faith-based, but is a a dimension of a a, a social consciousness in business. How would you position the faith and company series within this broader spectrum of faith and work integration?
0: One one of you willing to take that on? Well, I'm going to defer to Kenman for this. What's the source? So I'll take a first stab at this one, kind of maybe the positioning, and you can... Elaborate and and jump in, Kenman. Um, Faith and Co., Faith and Company, is really about telling stories. There's so much work going on. There's so much action in this domain between kind of the intersection between faith, people of faith, people of deep personal conviction and wanting to live out faithfully and The reality of where they spend most of their working lives. I mean so we see lots of organizations I think have sprung up kind of helping people to address that intersection Um, and there's been a lot of interesting work going on and I know at SPU we've been working on this for a couple decades now and what really is exciting to me about the Faith and Co movement is that it's kind of taking it out of the realm of the academic conceptual theological debate into the real world stories of people on the ground living this day to day and really being inspired by their stories and informed by their stories. To be quite honest, one of the coolest things for me as an academic is to go out and actually meet people and see where their kind of bleeding edge is, where they've been living and where their struggles are. And so it's put a human face in many respects onto this kind of what I think is too often a theological, conceptual, kind of abstract conversation, and so it's the lived experience of people, and so I think for those reasons, it cuts across a lot of the different specific movements, whether it's business as mission, whether it's faith and work, whether it's the the theology of work, whether it's business breakfasts, whether it's church small groups that are kind of wrestling with this, Um, the fact that these are real live, just lives and questions and stories, I think people can relate to that, and it really kind of challenges us to say, well, what, what does that mean for me?
1: That, that's really helpful. Kevin, I want to pick up on this idea of story, because I, I think it is one of the animating features behind Faith and Co. How did uh, the vision start? Um, what was the unique niche that you wanted to fill in this in this larger marketplace faith and work resources?
3: Let me just kind of tell the backstory then to answer John's question. Um, So a generous benefactor of Seattle Pacific University named Eric Stumberg uh, had his life changed in his mid-40s when he first encountered vocational theology at a retreat at Laity Lodge in Texas. And it was our former dean and provost, Jeff uh, who who's one of the speakers at this particular retreat that Eric attended. Uh, With a lot of emotion, Eric will say that um, although a lifelong Christian who strove to do business ethically, um, and he estimates that by that point in his life, he was in his mid-40s, he had already put in about 50,000 hours into the workplace, yet he never had a real sense of how his work in business uh, was a way to glorify God in its own right. So that encounter uh, with calling and vocation really began to free him to see his work as a ministry in and of itself. And it began to change the why's and the hows behind how he operated uh, his business. He runs a small technology company in Austin, Texas. So really, that um, prompted him to want to share this, uh, share that gift and these convictions with others. And so he called us to help uh, really kind of bring his vision to life, uh, make films, create courses, create small group curriculums, uh, curricula. And the goal is really to, in my mind, to inspire any equip Christians in the marketplace to live lives of integrity, um, that is to say, to deeply integrate their faith um, and their work, and he understood the power of media, and so he really wanted this to be compelling stories that would uh, take people on emotional journeys and that would move them to act in in, in new ways and to see the world through fresh eyes. So
1: um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how this started, when it started, and it's so hard to do this because um, it's such a visual resource, and and you almost have to watch the films. And of course, we'll, we'll provide all the links to our listeners to be able to watch the films. But I wonder if you could just start to paint a picture of what these films do. Like if I were sitting here and watching one of these leader profiles or organizational profiles,
3: what would I experience? Yeah, I, I think I can take a stab at that. You know, this this started four and a half years ago, unbelievably. In the spring of 2016 is when Eric approached us, and then we kind of launched this late summer, early fall of 16. We spent months and months researching, finding good stories. And I think what these films are, and again, it, it, two academics talking about films is going to sound like we're making very boring documentaries with lots of facts and proposition. You can binge watch these.
1: Like this is like okay, like yeah, I, yeah. I can binge watch these. This is
3: like Netflix. Yeah, for any Netflix, uh, you know, viewers out there, fans out there, which all of us are now with COVID-19, uh, a friend of mine described these as kind of a chef's table for uh, about Christians working in business. And that's kind of when I watched chef's table, I said, oh, okay, it makes sense. And so uh, really, again, don't take these from, if you're judging the quality of the films by the fact that Randy and I are boring academics, I'd ask you not to do that because um, we had good filmmakers who were storytellers working with us. So these are really good stories. We, you know, we went out and really found stories where there were good settings, where there were colorful characters, where there was conflict and undertow that would really kind of push an audience through the, neg- through the narrative. So first of all, they're compelling stories. Uh, but they actually have rich theological content. So the other part of it was we were really careful. I think it became clear over time. We had some convictions and some sense of theological framing, but as we heard more and more stories that were out there, uh, the kinds of stories we wanted to tell, and the theological messages we wanted to convey became clearer. So I think these are entertaining stories that are compelling, that are emotional. Almost everybody we interviewed cried at one point or another, and I think they were humbled by the fact of, how God was was using them, running or, or working in businesses to do such great work for, for, for the kingdom. Um, and they have got good theological content as well.
1: Great, Randy, anything you want to add?
0: Um, well, you asked what would people ex- you know experience if they watch these films? And in my, in my experience, talking to students and friends and colleagues who have watched these, they just connected a real kind of visceral, emotional, Uh, human level. And so this is not, it's not your typical documentary. um, These are just fascinating stories of the struggles that people have worked through. And business is hard in anybody's book and any day and any kind of year. And to add on top of that, some of the personal struggles and the the broader kind of uh, workplace struggles um, dealing with people that might have a lot of issues or challenges. Um, This is just full, rich life, and life has its ups and downs. And to help and to have some of these people relive their ups and downs on camera with a crew that's really able to kind of just listen well and just follow where the story goes and then be able to really tell that story in a way that connects to add music, to add visuals, to add, this is just a rich compelling, I mean, you feel yourself just drawn into these stories and drawn along, um, oftentimes moved, uh, just kind of emotionally tugged and just heartbroken, and then there's, usually though there's some redemption, I mean, that's one of the, kind of of referred to some of the theological framings, and one of the the, uh, important theological themes that cuts across many of these films is one of redemption, personal redemption, communal redemption, and even kind of creational redemption, the idea that God is at work. The thing that's exciting to me is that once we started looking for these stories, we all of a sudden started finding a lot more of them than what we thought were out there. This is a much bigger movement than I think the, the numbers at conferences and whatnot will, would suggest. And I think that was really Eric's initial kind of insight was there's stories out there and we can kind of share these stories they can be really encouraging because it's also feels very lonely to a lot of these people in the middle of their stories their struggles they have kind of sometimes done this on their own the church has not necessarily been the most kind of supportive partner in the, these people's these business people's professional journeys and so they've felt a bit isolated and so to hear that others have experienced similar things has been, Hugely kind of relatable for many of these people, but the the spirit is afoot it 's been really fascinating to me i mean there's something going on here there's a lot of movement the spirit is moving in really powerful, interesting ways, and we're just capturing some of these stories and so and hopefully kind of sharing them on, passing it forward, whatever you want to say um, it's really been a, a pleasure to be a part of something that's way bigger than than s p u or me or anybody, you know, the film crew, this has been fascinating.
1: Awesome. So we have a, um, we're running this local uh, community that's watching the films. It's in parallel with the the MOOC uh, through Seattle Pacific University. And um, we actually, it's interesting, we, we meet for an hour and 15 minutes. And we do some large group gatherings over Zoom. We do um, the breakouts. And we actually pause and usually watch one or two of the longer films. Then the, the films all run about, they're all less than about 10 minutes, right? Um, so they're, they're somewhere between like five and 10 minutes, kind of the feature films. And um, we just mute ourselves. We, we, I, I provide the link. They go, they watch it. But I'm able to see people immediately when they return from watching the film. And it, that's really powerful to see their emotions um, because literally they've just watched it and we're coming back to discuss it. And it is, these films are very, very moving in all kinds of different directions. They tug at all kinds of emotions. And um, it's been a real blessing, a gift, to just see that real-time response. Even though it's over Zoom, I can, you, know, you can still see the, the, the reaction in the eyes and in the faces of um, the participants.
0: I would like to ask a question. I'd like yeah. to hear a little more. What kind of reactions and, and kind of responses have the people in your, your group been sharing?
1: Well, I, I think sometimes move to I see misty eyes, uh, move to tear, tears. I think they're inspired. Uh, I, I think they're. We meet in the morning, and and um, by the time they watch the films, they don't need any more coffee. They're ready to go for the day. Um, so, I mean, it's a it's a wide range of of emotions that I think are are congruent with the kinds of stories that we're engaging. Um, th- these stories are very moving, from real tragic, difficult circumstances that people have overcome to, to lighter circumstances um, that uh, capture more of the, the, the joys of, of business. It, it's, it's really a mixed bag of the, the, the joy and the suffering that comes along with um, the, the hard work and endurance that's required to run a business well and to bring your faith uh, into the running of the business which I think can be the real challenge.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate the the comment about kind of the gamut, the range of, of kind of issues. Yeah, these are not intended to be tear-jerking movies or anything like that. The, I would characterize them as really just human stories. These are right. stories of real people who've been incredibly honest and open with the filmmakers to share their stories, you know, kind of warts and all, struggles and the uh, triumphs. And so it's it feels like a real gift. And that's kind of the thing I'm left with after being involved in making several of these is just it feels like a gift that these people have given us to allow us access into their life and into their stories and that they're kind of allowing a, the rest of the community to have access to
1: that. Kevin let me ask you about the, the film production company Untamed because I was actually I had a chance to to be a part of the filming of one of these at Edgerton Gear in Edgerton, Wisconsin mm-hmm. with with Randy when he, when he was filming here and um it's quite something to see and experience. I was just there for a day. I think they were on site for two or three days. But um, I wonder if you could talk about the, the filming, uh, the production company, and what it is that they do. Who are they, and and what made them such a compelling and important part of this?
3: That's a, that's a great question. So um, when Randy said he felt like God was afoot, the spirit is moving in this project, there's no question. And that was affirmed to us time and time again. One was how we felt found one kind of last, re- last minute replacement film subject. Somebody had dropped out of on one of our trips and we pursued this one lead and literally five or six degrees of separation away. It was a, a leather goods company in Fort Worth, Texas called uh, Saddleback Leather Company. Um, I literally, when they were suggested to me, I reached out and I only know one person who lives in Fort Worth. I reached out to that person. He's a lawyer, a former student. He reached out. Uh, He said, I don't know them, but I'll reach out. I didn't hear anything back for two weeks. And then I get an email one morning, still interested. And literally he sent the email to a friend of his, who's an accountant, who sent that to a company CEO, who sent it to like his veterinarian who knew Saddleback's marketing director. And literally the email comes back. Yeah, we're really interested. And Saddleback turned out, I think, to be one of our most viewed stories. And they uh, Dave Munson, the CEO, said, no, we're not part of any faith that work network. We don't, we're not associated with anybody in this. And that just let me know the things they were thinking about that it really felt like, yeah, God is really moving in fertile soil here. And the soil is not necessarily connected, at least in an in a earthly material way yet. Um, but the film company, how we found them. So this, this is a company called Untamed. It's uh, John Harrison and Sean Diamond. Uh, so when this all got started in 2016, I was at church one Sunday, uh, just met a a person for the first time at the coffee hour, started just, uh, briefly explaining what I was working on. And he said, have you guys hired a, a film crew yet? And I said, no, we're just about to, we had interviewed a couple of others and gotten proposals. And he said, well, let me suggest somebody, a friend of my daughter's. Well, that happened to be John Harrison. So I called John, he reached out to Sean Diamond, who, uh, I had met one time a few years before at a conference, actually a conference you and I organized at SPU, John, and I had a really good impression of Sean from that. They put together a proposal. They came in last minute. We met with them for a half a day. We were very impressed with them, not only their uh, technical and artistic filmmaking skills, but really uh, that they got our vision. And beyond that, they they would be good partners who would listen well and take our input. And they were, frankly, they were listening to the same from us. And I think they were happy that we were not uh, pretending to be filmmakers, right? That that we weren't going to live out our midlife crises by donning, you know, black um, French hats or French hat, you know, what do you call those?
0: <laughs> the beret.
3: Yeah, by donning a beret and wearing a turtleneck and prancing around like filmmakers. And um, so they, they did not want their artistry or their creative sensibilities interrupted. And we, I was pretty clear we're not filmmakers. We're going to take input from you, but given how much time we we're going to spend working together, we're on year four and a half of this uh, season one, you know, we shot in nine states, 15 cities, and three continents. So you can imagine not only the planning, but the time spent driving around in vans, being in hotels. Randy will tell you we'll fly to the East Coast and we will meet in the lobby of a hotel at 6, 6.30 a.m. Eastern time. That's 3.30 for us. And then we'll be out all day. We don't even get back to our hotel till eight or nine at night. So we're tired. There's a lot of room for tension and to be mad and not work well. And there's some tension. I mean, there's tension between storytelling and what makes a compelling, entertaining story versus we academics that want to cram all the content we can in. I think it's a healthy tension, but it's one that uh, that's kind of the fight. Randy will tell you, we're constantly having to work these things out, but it's really been a wonderful partnership and we've learned a ton from them about uh, doing excellent quality work about telling compelling stories. They're, they're, they're really great. They're world-class filmmakers. So um,
1: that's great. I, I want to go into some of your stories about the story, because I know you um, both have been heavily involved in this and have literally traveled all over the world. Uh, how many countries were, had you traveled to to feature the, the stories and how many films now are in the series? There's there are four seasons, right? You're, you're finishing up season three and
0: four. Yes, there, there are 34 uh, kind of main films between the four seasons. Some of them are in final production as we speak, and but we've filmed. Gosh, I don't I don't know if we we've added the Philippines and India and South Africa and Uganda these last um, these last two seasons, multiple states, um, but. Covid has kind of impacted things. Some of the the trips that we had planned for spring and summer of 2020 have been canceled, and so we kind of pivoted to some stories a little bit closer that we could could do without needing to travel. Um, so that's kind of can, took a few things off the off the list, but uh, other interesting stories have popped up. So we've we have a full slate now, um, but it's. Yeah, I just want to add a couple words about working with Sean and John, too, is that as an academic, kind of in school my whole life, literally, um, it was very different and challenging to start trying to think not analytically and conceptually and academically, but to think, and again, I don't do this very well, but to think narratively and to think artistically Uh, Because so much of the story is told from visuals and from emotions. And I am just in awe of what Sean and John are able to create. Even sitting through there for two days and getting probably 20 hours of raw footage and interviews and to distill that down to eight or 10 minutes. I mean, that is what a sifting process and choosing the right pieces and the quotes. um, And sometimes things They get told in one way on the ground, but they don't translate to the screen or vice versa. And and so you get these compelling thoughts and ideas. You think you're gonna hear one thing and the story ends up going a very different direction when you're on the ground. Um, And to be working with partners who can, are agile enough and listen well enough to adapt and follow. It's just a joy to watch Sean interview someone because he has a list of questions but is able to take that in a direction that uh, oftentimes ends up very far from where you thought it was gonna go, but ends up being way better. Um, and so it's really fascinating to work with true professionals and artists.
1: I wanna get into, we're going there because I really wanna hear stories about the films because I love these films. But let me just ask you one last question um, about an overarching question about the project. And that is, what is the theological narrative? that guides the sub narrative. So, we, you know, when you're out here talking to all these organizational leaders, business leaders, what what framework were you using to guide the stories um, that were inherent uh, or intrinsic for the particular leaders you were dialoguing with?
3: No, can I take a stab at that one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I I would say that we've been working on these themes of faith and business for a long time as academics. So we certainly had some ideas and convictions. Uh, But to be honest, as I mentioned earlier, I think these convictions and and the theological framing and messaging really came into sharper focus over time. And and partially that's the case because as we did our research, literally as we sifted through hundreds of stories, podcasts, conference talks, prayer breakfast talks, uh, reading magazine articles, reaching out to friends in our networks, um, we got a lot of stories referred to us, and we kept encountering uh, a few themes that came up that became apparent to us. These were the stories we did not actually want to tell, because they were they were hitting on themes that we thought were inadequate theologically, and they're very fairly common. And so some of them, I think I've categorized this way. One would be that business is primarily a platform for evangelism, right? So we heard a lot of stories like that. The second story uh, was kind of the giving model so that people would say oh i know somebody who runs this business and they give away 10% of their earnings every year and that's that's fantastic that's something to be encouraged what both of those leave out i'm afraid is really how the gospel touches the work itself how does business itself honor god and how should we re- be we be running our businesses in terms of the products and services we offer in terms of how we treat our customers and employees in terms of how we interact with our communities in terms of how we think about environmental sustainability. Another story we heard was uh, really kind of a soft version of the prosperity gospel. We got this one a number of times where somebody said, Oh, I know somebody who, you know, they were really down on their chips. They weren't going to make, be able to make next month's payroll without reneging on some agreement they had made with a customer. But they uh, decided to honor their word and God rewarded their faithfulness. Not only did they make next month's payroll, they became a multimillion dollar enterprise. And again, we rejoice in that. We think that's great. God can act that way. But, you know, miracles really are an exception. And the assumption that God rewards our faithfulness through dollar signs uh, is really uh, sort of a key tenet of the prosperity gospel. And so, and those are kind of three of the very common stories out there. And so we knew those were the ones we did not want to really put our focus on. And so for us, I think it comes down to really, you know, the gospel touches everything. Yes, uh, we Christians should care about, saving souls and getting people to heaven. But equally, we should care about how people live in this life too, right? This life matters, the material world. Um, giving away money is great, but how about focusing also on how we earn it and how we allocate it internally to stakeholders, right? And so that was another commitment. And and this idea that there's no sacred secular separation. So uh, faith in business, uh, would really have to be integral in in deep imaginative ways, and so and so to be honest, you know, we because for years we had worked on these things. I mean, we've written articles, books about it. We thought we had this figured out. Then we get out there, and there are people, as Randy said, living this in ways that were so deep and so imaginative. It, it blew us away. And so I think one uh, example I will share is uh, Dayspring Technologies, which which I believe, John, you might have introduced me to. I think I heard their talks of Havana. And several people suggested uh, them to us. But they're based in San Francisco. They were started really to train underemployed underemployed youth uh, in technology. Um, but they, you know, a successful technology software company, they ended up moving purposely to Baby, which is a very poor overlooked community in San Francisco. High crime. In fact, they told us do not leave gear in your car, park in our lot. We've had clients come here and have their cars broken into. Uh, but they move moved there really to invest in the community, and they really model radical faith. I mean, they have a 40-hour work week. That's it. And the leaders of the company model the same thing so that employees will practice Sabbath and have lives outside of work. And that's pretty unusual for a technology company, very unusual. Uh, they run on three months of uh, capital reserves. That's it. Uh, I, I've been wanting to call them to see how that's worked out in COVID. I don't know if that's put them in a tougher spot, but they really believe this is like manna that we have to trust God for provision for us accumulating a bunch of money in reserves is really not actively trusting God in our business. Uh, they've invested heavily in in their local community. And so again, they were living out um, this uh, their faith in ways that we really hadn't even uh, thought of and so we were pretty blown away when we got out there to discover what was happening in the field beyond what we what we had thought of
1: yeah that's yeah. That's, that's really great Randy I wonder if you have a favorite story or two Kevin I'll give you a chance to come back and share another favorite story but as you travel the globe and met with these business leaders uh, are there one or two that really stand out
0: it's like asking me which is my favorite child, right? I mean, because uh, I, maybe because it's fresh in my mind, uh, it's one of the more recent stories that I went on. We did a trip to South Africa and filmed a couple stories down there, and one, it's just an amazing country. I'd never been before, and the the issues down there are just palpable. I mean, the, the legacy of apartheid is still very much um, everywhere, and so to go and The the story of Waste Plan is a local company that's actually a waste processing organization uh, where they take uh, clients' waste streams and they separate them out and they recycle up to 99% of all of their waste stream. Um, And they do it though by employing thousands of local workers, so providing lots of jobs. these are not glamorous jobs by any stretch. I mean, it's literally sorting through people's trash stream and company's trash stream. Um, but they also, they partner with the local communities and fund um, preschools in the townships where the, a lot of their employees come from. Um, and they're so they have an environmental impact, a community impact, really good employers. But most dramatically for me was the story of, of Bertie Lawrence who was really convicted that that he wanted to share ownership of the company and really wanted to give God ownership. And so he actually had to create a whole different separate legal structure and has since given 51% of the entire equity in the company to this other uh, foundation that holds it in trust and uses it to benefit the local Black communities in South Africa and in schools. And the way the law is written there is... um, If you set up this company such that it has Black um, beneficiaries, the government treats you as a Black-owned company. And so, uh, Bertie likes to say that he gave 51% of his company to God, and the government says that the company is now Black-owned. So, they're now a Black-owned company in South Africa, um, processing people's uh, waste streams to... uh, to do glory to God. And it's just an amazing organization and what a, a story of faithfulness and, and dedication and just trust. And so I had to go to South Africa. When I heard about it, I had to go to South Africa to, to actually experience it in person. And it was everything I thought it would be.
1: And, and this might be a good time, Randy. I want to come back to you, Kenman. And then Randy, I want to come back and get another story. But Randy, I wonder if you could talk about each of the four seasons. Because I think this story, South African story, is in a season three or
0: four because I haven't seen it yet. Yes. What does what, what each season focus on? Good question. Uh, it started out as a one season uh, series and it was so well received. But the first season is about the purpose of business. It's kind of the big picture. How does business fit into a theological understanding of business? And and then it also kind of unpacks that and looks at, well, what does that mean for the different stakeholders in business? Um, for customers and for employees and for the environment. And and so we've taken that broader, those broad themes, and then it was so well-received that um, the funder said, let's make more of these. And so we decided, well, let's put a bit more of a focus and let's drill down into some of these issues. And so then we focused each of the seasons two, three, and four on particular stakeholder groups. So season two was around how does business serve employees Season three was around how do businesses serve their customers? And then season four was about serving the world. And so there we mean community and creation.
3: Cameron, let's go to a favorite story of yours. Yeah, so another favorite story I have to think is a story about uh, Gary Ginter, who I think, John, is actually somebody you know from his long involvement with InterVarsity. But here's a guy in his 70s that had started or been a part of a number of very, very successful businesses, I think dealing with um, trading commodities, all all in kind of the world of finance around Chicago. And he had been a multi-multi-millionaire, had given away most of his money, uh, uh, and lives in um, a neighborhood in Chicago that nobody would ever guess a partner at Hull Trading or a partner at CRT would live in this neighborhood. In fact, uh, when we filmed him, Uh, we arrived and there had literally been a shooting where four people were shot in a street corner, maybe a quarter of a mile from his house, um, five days before we got there. Um, And so Gary lived this remarkable life of um, a a modest lifestyle, giving away his money. In fact, we uh, had titled this, A Long Obedience, kind of borrowing from Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. But we may as well have titled it The Anti-Prosperity Gospel, because um, here Gary's in his seventies, he had started a business um, dealing uh, so, something based on uh, an invention of his father's. Um, it's an environmentally oriented business. And I think he's been running it for 25 years. He and his wife uh, have put up almost, almost all of the capital, if I'm not mistaken. And they've got patents and they've yet to have been able to scale or commercialize their technology. And here we catch him in his 70s, and it's a hard moment. There's real, honest, and transparent emotion in his voice about you guys are catching me at a really tough time. I, I have a, I'm, I'm, I kind of have a lot of doubt right now whether or not this is where God wants me because I, I would want to retire, but I'm not given permission to do that yet. And we call it a long obedience because here he is at the end of his life, possibly never going to see the success of his of this business, but still faithful, still obeying God, still walking the walk, and not associating success with finance or profit, right? And so I thought it was a real, really beautiful story that really goes against what I had described early as this soft prosperity gospel that unfortunately really gets to be a part of this faith and business movement in subtle ways um, more often than, than I would like to see.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I do remember him from MBA days and he would come to, um, I was at the, uh, the Kellogg School at Northwestern University. We would regularly have him talk about his commitment to giving and resources and his theology of work and faith. And he's just, he is a person that doesn't change in times of deficit. He is the same person, no matter what is going on in his life. I mean, I think he is, he is just a very faithful person. His lifestyle doesn't change. His commitments don't change. It's really an amazing thing to see and to watch over a lifetime. Randy, let's go back to you for a story, uh, another favorite story or maybe something crazy or poignant that happened um, as you've traveled the globe um, meeting these business owners.
0: It was related to the South Africa trip, but uh, it was crazy because I didn't expect it in, in terms of we had a day layover because we arrived at like the middle of the night and we weren't going to film until the next day. And so we kind of had a day to figure out what to do with it. And the guy who ended up driving us from the airport told us about this, hey, just outside of Johannesburg here, if you want, tomorrow I can take you out to this place I know. Where they're working on preserving, they're working with cats, large cats, and you can walk with the lions if you want. And so we went out and we actually walked, did a walk through the kind of the bush with this pride of lions that uh, uh, and some some local kind of folks there as well. But we were like within four feet of these full-grown lions, um, and then we got to hang out with some of the young lions as well and cheetahs and other things. And it was just like, I mean, that was just something I did, never expected, but uh, it was one of the perks. What, I guess, of what kind of
1: feedback did you get from the Seattle Pacific risk, risk management team on that one? Uh,
3: uh, we, we, we started calling him Simba after that, <laughs> right? Can you feel the
0: love? To... Sorry. <laughs> so another story, another film story that um, I really like, uh, that resonates for me a lot, and I think I want to connect this to the idea of what the U.S. before about kind of the theological framing, yeah. Um, when it came to season number two, we're talking about serving employees. One of the important themes for us was this idea of the Imago Day, kind of this notion of um, people being created in the image of God. And if you really, if we took that seriously and, you know, what does that mean for how we would treat all the employees who work with and for us? And so that was kind of the theme across. I mean, one of my favorite stories from that season was about a restaurant in Seattle by the name of Canvas This is a world class restaurant, a James Beard Award winning, um, incredibly high fine dining. But the family that owns it, the Canless family, is just very thoughtful, faithful, down to earth people. And so have thought more rigorously and more deeply about what does it mean to really care for one's employees as people before customers. I mean, this is all about you think customers would be number one, but if you're gonna if you're gonna serve your customers, you really have to take care of your employees. And so they're all about how do we grow our employees to be the people that God has intended for them to be? And how does working here at this restaurant enable you to kind of understand and live into that kind of vocation? And they have pushed that in incredible ways. And so that was just a fascinating, interesting as a Person who studies this, thoughtful, just so rigorous and interesting, and a little addendum to that, and this is where just right now, they've had to pivot dramatically like most restaurants under the, in COVID, and so we actually have done a follow-up study with them for season three about serving their customers, because they don't have any customers coming into their restaurant anymore, So, but they have been incredibly creative and thoughtful and able to employ all of their people, keep them all employed during this crisis, and serve their community and and, uh, customers in really creative, interesting ways. So, I mean, it's just this idea of pushing the envelope and what does it mean to stay true to your understanding of reality and of faith in a time when all the other rules don't seem to make sense anymore?
1: So uh, you can finish the Canlis story for me because I saw a little promo, um, a dialogue with the Canlis brothers and Bill Gates about turning their restaurant into a community college—is this—is this the story? So maybe you should just go ahead and, and well, talk about. that's the
0: latest incarnation of Campbell. Oh, yeah. that they have started something called a community college, um, where they have world-class wine people, chefs, um, and they also, because of who they are in the local community, they know everybody in Seattle. I mean, because everybody celebrates their anniversaries and all their special events. Oftentimes they go to celebrate a canvas. So the Canvas family knows Bill Gates and they know the movers and shakers in Seattle. So they said, well, why don't we create a forum where we can actually have all these people who have a lot and have resources and insight and knowledge and share that with the, the broader community. So they've created this thing they call it community college where you sign up for these one day or you know an hour or two hour type classes and you learn about local history you learn about fascinating science you learn about cooking um, and there's sometimes there's kits that go along if you want to sample along or cook along or work along um, and so packaging all these things it keeps their supply chain uh, in business and so they've created a Community supported agriculture. They created a burger drive through burger place, a crab shack. They do drive in movies in their parking lot. I mean, they've been doing all kinds of things um, all since March, and they're still in business. I mean, they're breaking even. Mark says, but they're not necessarily, and which is more than many restaurants are doing. And so, but all their people have stayed employed with benefits, and um, so they've been able to retain their the core of who they are. And,
3: and by the way, just to back up a little bit, I think, Randy, you're going to pre- betray our, ident- our real identities as boring college professors here, because I think you called it a follow-up study. You meant film, right? Film, yes. Follow-up film. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Kevin, let's go to you for another favorite story or our poignant experience um, as you were telling the stories of these business leaders around the
3: world. Gosh, I think, um, well, one of the times I cried on set was actually at at Dayspring, and we were interviewing a woman that's in the DaySpring ecosystem, she was helped. Her business was helped by their Good Neighbor Fund, which makes small, uncollateralized loans to local businesses in, in the neighborhood. And uh, she runs a small baking shop. She makes these award-winning baked goods. And um, she had borrowed money, I think, to um, rent another facility to bake it, because, or, or actually, to buy an oven. I can't remember what it was. It was a small loan that basically was going to enable her to get to the next level in her business. And uh, you know, I think I cried when she told her story.
1: Do you have another, do you have another company, um, Kevin, or another experience? Oh, that...
3: yeah. Well, I mean, I think maybe this would be a good, maybe a good teaser for your editor or something, right? But I, mm-hmm. I think, uh, well, this, actually, John, this is one you connected me with, because you connected me to John Brandon at Apple at the time. But um, I was very surprised to hear about the Christian influence behind the design of the Apple retail experience. And, and the Apple retail experience for young people is no big deal because a lot of stores now look at that, but look like that. But if you go back for old guys like us, the way software and electronics used to be sold were in stores with really high shelves, with software and electronics all jammed into them. And um, and you couldn't get anybody to help you. And so the whole Apple store designed around um, really great service to the customer, lots of time, the genius bar, and to interview the person who was um, instrumental in designing that, and to hear the story about how love of neighbor was really a key driver of that, was was pretty remarkable.
1: Well, that's that's great. I, it, it's really fun having watched the videos to hear you talk about them from the production side. Actually being there when the filming was taking place. What um, what's one uh, what's an area or two that you feel like um, viewers have misunderstood is there is there a part of this project that's misunderstood by others, and if so, why you talked about the t- stories you didn't want to tell at the beginning, which I think is really compelling um, have have viewers expected those kinds of stories or or is there another dimension?
3: I'm not sure I've gotten a lot of negative feedback on it. I suppose that we have a fairly selective audience. I think people that are watching these are motivated and hungry. And we kind of knew that. I mean, um, we kind of thought these are going to be for people who um, are in the workforce, maybe have achieved a level of financial or professional success, but still feel an emptiness that, you know, there's something more, there's something missing about how my faith connects with what I do. And so I think we've, generally had a pretty motivated audience. Um, and and maybe the folks who don't like what we're doing or have some objections just haven't said. Um, so we've escaped the the current political climate in that way, right? We haven't gotten a lot of hate that I'm aware of anyway. Um, maybe people just aren't saying. So maybe Randy could say more than that.
0: Uh, actually, no, I don't, I don't. I have not gotten any kind of significant negative pushback at all. Um, what I hear is that people, they can just identify. And even people who, don't self-identify as Christians, appreciate kind of the positive impact that these companies are having in the world. And so it really resonates, even though they might not share the particular faith orientation. There's an, a, an understanding that these people, are what they're doing is a good thing. Um, and it's the world is better for companies like this. And I think there's admiration. Um, so... I I struggle to actually to answer the question, John, about um, how people misunderstand these. I think sometimes the the one thing that I've experienced is approaching companies, sometimes kind of out of the blue, that haven't heard about Faith & Co. And we say, you know, we're looking for companies that have exemplary employee practices um, and kind of from a Christian point of view, there's Maybe a little bit more actually trepidation on their part of wanting to be typecast as a Christian company and maybe their their audience in their market that doesn't understand them as being a Christian or a faith-based organization. And it's it doesn't necessarily mean that they lead with their faith. Now, some of the companies that we profile are very explicit and wanting to honor God is part of their mission statement. And their uh, other companies, the founders and the people who work there, the, the key leaders, are persons of faith and they it's really has shaped many of their decisions and behaviors and how they run the company but it's not a requirement by any stretch these are typically very accepting um, diverse kind of organizations and so there's a little bit of maybe the pushback has been I don't want to be part of something that defines kind of faith too narrowly Um, and so as exclusionary. And so these are very winsome. These are very inclusive, very kind of broad in terms of kind of who they love in terms of it's all of our neighbors. It's not just some of the ones that happen to share my particular worldview or faith. We we are called to love everybody. And so these companies are really, um, take that to heart and really kind of intentional about putting that into practice. So I yeah, that's
1: an interesting insight. Uh, the companies aren't, aren't necessarily, and in most cases, I am assuming the vast majority of cases aren't looking for a platform. They they just want to do good business. They they're really focused on serving their employees, their customers, creating great products and services and they they're not looking for a platform to promote themselves. So it's interesting that if there's any pushback, it's just, you know, reticence on the part of companies just, you know, do they want to go public? Some of them are public, but do they really want to go public with their story?
0: Sorry, especially in an environment I think where it has The faith has become politicized and uh, has become kind of a a, a hot or loaded topic. There's a risk of wanting, you know, potentially alienating some or being misunderstood by some customers or different stakeholders or even employees. So I think, yeah, more there's maybe a bit of sensitivity about do I want to be known as this? But almost all of them are they're sharing their stories. It's who they are maybe at a little bit of a risk to themselves. I would agree with
3: that. And we had certainly some people that we would have liked to have included that uh, ultimately said no, because they they had to be very cautious in how they moved uh, with their faith where they were. And, you know, we said blessings to you. We completely understand God calls people to work differently and to be open or less open with their story at different times. And so uh, we were very understanding about that. And I, And I think on the politicization thing, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think it's just... It's sad, but uh, yeah, people just did not want to be associated with perhaps certain renditions of, of Christianity and they had to be careful. And I think one thing I'd want to say is you know, we never ask questions about politics, right? And so that's one of the fun things is that I, I'm going to guess we have people that are subjects of these films across the political spectrum. And so this is one place where people are unified and together that we can move together and work on these sets of issues Regardless of political views, uh, regardless of political positions, I don't think we had anybody ever bring up um, a a policy or political position at least explicitly in our understanding. We never asked anybody their political views, so we don't know. Um, and so I'm again, I'm, I think I'm. It's a good guess that there's people across the spectrum together on this. And
1: that's a beautiful thing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, as a viewer, it doesn't come off as partisan in any way. These are just people um, doing their best to interpret scripture and and, and try to live it out in ways that are real practical and contextual for their situation. Um, so I, I think you're exactly right as, as if you're, we're in the home stretch here. I know we've gone a little over an hour, but um, okay. let me just ask you one or two last questions here. I'm curious about uh, COVID-19. It's clearly altered your production plans, but I wonder if it's also shaping um, ideas you have for future stories. What post-COVID-19 story would you like to tell?
0: Well, I'll jump in there because uh, we're in the middle of it right now, actually, um, we are producing the seasons three and four concurrently, actually, and we had nine of the 16 films that we were intending to make. We'd filmed pre-COVID, um, which meant we had seven more that we were trying to complete, and we'd had plans to, to go to Texas and Puerto Rico and um, New York and California and several other places all fall through, sometimes because they didn't want people coming from Seattle where the COVID kind of started and sometimes because they had hotspots, you know, ticking up in, in their neck of the woods. And so uh, all over the map, um, literally when it comes to that. So we definitely had to pivot a couple of the stories. The companies no longer are in business. Uh, they mm-hmm. didn't survive COVID. Um, as I mentioned, canvas uh, so many of them have had to pivot dramatically. It's, so that's kind of a one more interesting questions. You know, what's new stories do we want to tell? Kind of how are they currently adapting yeah. to the environment? I think it's fascinating. The, the post COVID, uh, from my point of view, I'm intrigued by we, when we did the employee story, uh, the notion of essential workers. I think there's been a heightened appreciation for what have oftentimes been very low paid, but now we realize are fundamentally essential kind of workers and. Are we going to treat them differently on the other side Um, is there will we appreciate the role of labor Um, what are we looking at in terms of and how will this change employer employee kinds of dynamics Um, i think as customers the issue of online delivery of things and versus the retail channels how will that change fundamentally certain industries so i think there's Lots of potential kinds of stories here in terms of how does one respond to a pandemic, to political upheaval. I think closely allied in my mind is the whole idea of systemic injustice. How are companies responding to that? And so issues of diversity, issues of inclusion. It was brought to my attention that we did not have the most representative suite of kind of uh, protagonists and subjects in the the library of Faith & Co. So we've been intentional in trying to reach out to some other underrepresented communities to make sure we get stories that uh, are unique to their particular uh, experiences and domains. So I'm hoping we can really kind of broaden the, the library of, of stories that we can tell that addresses and speaks to more people, a broader kind of population of people. Kim, anything you'd like to add?
3: No, I, I, I think that addresses it. I would have said the same Good. thing.
0: Last question for you, Kim,
3: and I'll, I'll turn
1: to you with this. What makes you hopeful about business? Be, uh, you've, been, you've committed your life to helping people think redemptively about business. What makes you hopeful?
3: You know, I, I think what makes me hopeful are really all of these people we encountered, whether they got featured in our films or not, because we also found a lot of good stories and for sometimes logistics, sometimes for thematic redundancy, sometimes they didn't want to be that forward facing with their their faith out in public. Uh, a lot of them would have fit, um, but they were not in- included. Um, but, you know, it, it was amazing to meet all of these people, discover them on our part, I, I should say, or, or stumble across them all with similar convictions about business as a vocation to serve God and others. And what was cool is that most of them were not connected to each other. And a few, as I mentioned, uh, were not part of any kind of faith at work network at all. Uh, They came to these conclusions seemingly on their own. And so it seemed to us that God was really at work to spawn a movement uh, of like-minded people, um, all working for the common good but not, as you might imagine, primarily through politics, churches, or civic organizations, but through their businesses. Um, and I find that very helpful.
0: Thank you. Randy? Working with young people, I think, also gives me a great sense of hope, because just my normal university students, um, they, they're they not just idealistic like young students normally are, but they have a bigger, broader more inclusive understanding of what the role business could play in, in society. And so I think I get excited about their vision that they are not going to be content to have business kind of constrained to a narrow kind of profit-seeking entity. They, wanna, they want all of society, government, but also business and the church to really kind of be about the common good. Kevin mentioned that word. Uh, a second ago. And I think that's really true. I think so. It's this this expanding growing vision. Um, and these are usually very faithful, kind of committed young people. And so I'm actually hopeful um, that our world has more potential or that business actually can change and is changing. I mean, we're seeing it now with the Business Roundtable and some of the other kind of big organizations realizing that with climate change and other political movements, they need to respond. And so I think slowly businesses are waking up, but I think young, the younger generation is out ahead and they're going to be in charge someday. So I think they're taking us in the right direction. As someone who got involved in faith and co in unit team for seasons two, three and four now, um, I think it's been way easier after the first season, because to have these set of stories to, to point people to, to say, hey, we're interested. We've heard your story. We'd love to make a film about you or talk to you about making one. Um to be able to point them to the previous films to see um what it is we're talking about has opened so many doors. I can't tell you how much easier it is to recruit people now that they know what they're getting involved in. In fact, many of them were like, yeah, I want to be involved in that. Right. Where I really feel for Kenman uh, for trying to invite people to be involved, something that didn't exist yet. Um, and that was a much harder kind of proposition. So it's it's been fun to build on the work of those that went before.
1: Well, you guys, you've created a really special project. And I want to thank you for um, your investment in this project. It's an amazing gift to the church. It's an amazing gift to um, the business community. So thank you. Uh, as as someone who's not directly involved, but has benefited from the work, I just want to thank you. I know everyone who encounters Faith & Co. will will really appreciate the value um, that it is.
3: A lot of work involved. Um, you know, well before any cameras come out or light panels get mounted, uh, there's a ton of pre-production planning and strategizing. And um, even though Randy and I get the privilege of being featured on your podcast today, there are really a lot of people running around in the background. And in the beginning of this project, uh, there was a guy named Roland Moe, who was a director of digital learning at SPU that really kind of helped champion this internally, helped set the vision. Uh, There was Gene Kim, who's the director of the Center Integrity for Business, who also helped in a lot of strategic planning and handling marketing and legal. Uh, Isabel Woodward, one of our graduate students that helped with a lot of the logistics and really gave us a 20-something-year-old perspective at a lot of the kind of early on strategy. Christine Robertson, who was the assistant in the Center for Integrity and Business, joined us year two. There's a guy named Mark Mayhew, who was associated with Regent College, who produced um, Reframe, who really just helped us with a lot of uh, planning and look out for that could trip us up, and he was indispensable. Then there's a ton of donors who gave generously to the project, and then people like you, John, who frankly opened their networks to us to introduce us to people. Because we had nothing to show people before the first series of uh, films were made. And it was really all untrusted. It took people to very generously, uh, essentially vouch for us and, and make introductions. So really it really took a lot of people. Uh, Randy, you probably have some, some names to add to this.
0: Well, yeah, I got involved in kind of just a little bit of year one, but that took over kind of in year two uh, to help coordinate season two. And a couple of colleagues, Denise Daniels and Gary Carnes. Have helped kind of shape the stories for the last couple of years. You know, Ross Stewart, the dean, has really kind of been championing this and kind of helping to create the resources. And I mean, it takes a whole village. I mean, and we even tapped a lot of our school of theology folks to kind of put together some kind of expert commentary. And there's just hundreds and hundreds of people that have been involved in this. And yeah, definitely a lot of friends who've opened up their networks is really there's a an amazing community out here. So this is, you know, you hear about it takes a village. This is really feels like it has taken a village to kind of pull this whole thing off.
1: Well, it's apparent that it did um, require a village and that you had the best from all of the village members to to create something that's as beautiful as it is. So And thanks to both of you for joining and sharing your thoughts. And um it's been a really interesting and and um, enlightening conversation.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us, John. Pleasure.
1: The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson. And graphic design by Madeline Ramsey.